Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Film Daily. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 30th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion of The Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 1, titled The Marshal. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And we have a special guest who joins us for all the Mandalorian spoiler podcasts uh, from Star Wars Insider, StarWars.com, the Full of Sith podcast, and some say called SlashFilm.com, Brian Young. Hey, thanks for having me. I uh, really like talking about Star Wars. Yeah, and if you haven't seen, uh, Brian every week on the site has an, has like a, I, I, I don't want to call it a recap because I, I feel like it's much more than a recap. What would you call your your column about the Mandalorian every Friday? Uh, you know, I I I, I kind of call it a review um, in that it does what I think, or it it aims to do what I hope good criticism does is just shine lights on aspects of the the show that people wouldn't have noticed, whether that's in the filmmaking or the cinematic references or the mythological references in Star Wars. So I don't know. I just call it a review, but. Yeah, Maybe and, it's a little bit more in depth than that too. And this morning's one is like what two thousand words. 
Yeah, it just kept coming, and I feel like I still didn't hit everything. <laughs> and it's crazy, too. Uh, this year, or at least for the first episode, Disney is not providing screeners for press. So, uh, you know, all of us. Uh... Actually, Brad, did you, did you stay up till midnight, or did you watch it this morning? No, I definitely watched this morning because it, it didn't come online until midnight Pacific time, which is 2 a.m. my time, and I'm getting too old to do that. <laughs> I was up at midnight and I watched the thing and I was like, I'll just go to bed after I couldn't sleep. I was like up till 3am just like checking Twitter, reading up on things. I, I was just like amped up. So uh, uh, Brian, you saw it last night, right? No. Um, I mean, in my time zone, it's 1am and like Brad, I'm getting too old for that sort of thing. <laughs> so I got up at five actually to watch okay. it. And well, and I knew, if I watched it last night, I was going to sit down and have to write my my review then. So and I knew I wouldn't sleep. So I got up early and, and got it done and got it over to to you all as fast as I possibly could. Yeah. Well, anyways, we're all on an even keel here. No one gets, you know, information ahead of time. Uh, 2020 has sucked, but at least we have a new season of The Mandalorian, right? I guess. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's a silver I, lining. I, I feel like it's the most excited I've been in a long time last night watching that episode. Uh, okay, before we get into the, the, the heavy spoilers, I mean, I wouldn't listen to this podcast if you haven't seen the episode. So I'd go watch that on Disney Plus right now. Uh, but before we get to that, let's give our brief thoughts, uh, brief reactions. And I'll start things off by saying, I think this is how you do fan service right. Like, fan service gets a bad rap. I, I think that word is kind of used as a derogatory word in, in certain ways. Um, but it was cool, you know, to... I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that was being done in this episode was not references for references' sake. It was to further a story. And then, like, when there were, like, interesting fan nods and references, you kind of have to connect the dots. It wasn't like, oh, look at that blah 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 do you know what I mean it wasn't like very obvious about it um the production budget felt much bigger than season one for me uh I, I I don't know I love that this was 54 minutes where most of the season one episodes were much shorter I think like most of them were closer to the 30 minutes um I guess it's so good it was just it was so epic so good uh I guess my only negative that I want to say is I think I wish baby Yoda had more of a role in this episode he was kind of like the side I, I mean i guess he's always the sidekick but he really didn't have much to do so um but i was really impressed with uh john favreau and what he was able to accomplish here this is the first time you know he's obviously the creator of the show he's a writer of the show but this is the and a producer but this is the first time he directed an episode uh so so brian what, what are your brief thoughts so i really loved the cinematic feel of it and it felt very um george lucas and very spielberg and i'm sure we'll talk about that um, later, but I, I, I'll be honest, like I sort of as excited I was for what I saw at the ending, I was also dismayed. Um, and it kind of left me with like a bittersweet feeling because I've really enjoyed Boba Fett being dead. Yeah. I, and, I'm, I'm getting, it's kind of like the feeling that a lot of people had with, uh, thinking Ray was a nobody and then, you know, JJ Abrams comes along. Well, I don't, I, I mean, like, I that was easier for me to swallow. Like, I really... Well, you only really, had two years of that, right? Like, only two years of, like, thinking that that was the reality. 
Yeah, we've had a lot longer to to feel that that Boba Fett was dead, but I really am appreciative of the fact that they worked in all of the stuff that Chuck Wendig had created around the armor and Cobb Vanth, Timothy Oliphant's character, that uh, really that that has been the story for a long time. And if they are incorporating that, I'm still not. I don't know, maybe maybe people know other things that I don't, but I'm still holding hope that it's not actually Boba Fett and it's some other random clone. But I know that that's a long shot. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Uh, do you have anything else to say in your brief thoughts? Uh, just it was fun. It was really fun. And I haven't had that fun sitting, had that much fun sitting down and watching something like, like this in a long time, probably since last season. Well, no, since Clone Wars. Yeah. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on the... By the way, are we calling this like season two, episode one, or is this chapter nine? Like they're calling it chapter nine. What I mean, should we be calling it both? Okay. <laughs> okay. What did you think of chapter nine? Um, episode one. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I had, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I feel like I wish that maybe it wasn't quite as long. Um, because even though it was a good episode, I, I, I felt a lot better when the episodes were between like thirty and forty minutes. Uh, it just just makes it feel a little bit breezier. Um, especially since, you know, even though this season premiere did have some interesting new, uh, details to reveal, it felt more like an episode that was from like the middle of a season as opposed to a season premiere. Um, only because I didn't feel like that there was much advancement as far as like the over arcing plot. Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's just a basic, it's like, well, I guess I'm taking this kid back to where, you know, uh, to his people and, you know, and here's another, you know, adventure of the week scenario. Um, and granted, it's, you know, the, the, like I said, there are big reveals. I, I, I get, I always like, I feel like season premieres, you know, should have, you know, something a little bit bigger. And granted, you know, the, the whole, the whole idea of trying to take down a crate dragon is a big thing. I mean, that's, that's a big impressive visual effect that you're not likely to get in, you know, an average middle episode on a, even like a show like The Mandalorian, you know. So that, that was a, a big deal, but um, I don't know. I, I don't want to say that I was disappointed because I, I, I was never bored. I still had a lot of fun with it, but I guess I was just expecting a little bit more of an advancement with the, the serial aspect of the story. Well, th- that was my main complaint about season one was it was a lot of like, you know, mission or adventure of the week. And it wasn't a lot of like, th- there isn't really much of a overall like serial plot of the show yet. But I'm hoping that kicks into gear this season. What, yeah. what, what do you guys think? Yeah, because I, I don't I don't mind the adventure of the week format necessarily, but I just wish that the progress on the overarching serial part of it was a little bit more meaty, I guess, in each episode, especially since th- these are very short seasons. You know, it's interesting that it, it kind of depends on the scale you're looking at it from, too, right? Like in terms of the Mandalorian and his story with seeking out Mandalorians to return the asset to its people, whether those are Jedi or other creatures of its kind, it doesn't it doesn't move that ball forward very much at all. But when you pull back and look at the Star Wars universe, what it does with crate Dragons and Tusken Raiders and Tatooine and Boba Fett absolutely does move that ball forward so it's interesting to watch them balance between you know both those masters that they have to work for i think that's fair but i but i also think the progress of those balls in question is like i mean how much how much deeper are we into star wars lore by spending some extra time with tusken raiders and a crate dragon like it's not necessarily hugely 
revealing stuff that like pr- provides a, a, a lot more depth into the Star Wars universe. It's just like more interesting details of stuff that we were already familiar with. Yeah. Okay, okay guys, we've, we've got nine minutes, which is our brief reaction. So I think we need to get into this. Uh, the episode begins with Mando and the child walking through a seedy, abandoned urban area. Is this the first time we've seen graffiti in Star Wars Galaxy? No, uh, Sabine Wren is known for her graffiti throughout the entirety of Rebels, um, which is what actually tipped me off. I would not be surprised if we saw Sabine Wren on the show at some point uh, with him questing for other Mandalorians and how much they've featured the graffiti in the the advertising. Hmm, I didn't even think about the graffiti as possibly even a thematic setup for Wren. That's that's smart. Okay, they come across a secret entrance guarded by a Twi'lek. Uh, Mando informs him that he's looking for someone named Gore Koresh. And with that, he's led inside. There's two Gamoran guards fighting in the ring at the center of this uh, room. Uh, have we ever seen the Gamoran guards without their armor? They look so weird. No, no, we haven't. And yeah, they looked they looked weird, but I really loved the effect of the, uh, the vibro axes hitting against each other. That was really cool. Yeah, because that was the first time we actually saw like the vibro effect of those weapons, right? Um, I think we've seen them in animated, right? Yeah, we've seen some vibro blade like stuff, but not like the vibro, like the big Gamorrean vibro axe thing. Oh, okay. The uh, I remember when they were promoting the first season, uh, Dave and John were talking about how kind of they imagined that it was like they had there were like little kids in a sandbox but they didn't have like the cool Star Wars toy they had like Boba Fett and that was the only cool Star Wars toy and they had a bunch of the rejects and they kind of like had to put on the story uh that was like not the you know the main cool characters um i kind of felt that with like this scene of the gamorians like i know that like action figures don't have um clothes like dolls do but it almost felt like you know oh they had a couple gamorian guard figures and oh the, the their armor has been lost somewhere in the sandbox yeah and they're like what do we do with them oh we'll make them wrestlers or boxers or whatever yeah so um okay we see also tell me if i'm wrong here but it looked like they had a, a lot of like recycled designs for like aliens and extras in like this arena like there looked like an, we, we see the person that looks like constable zuvio again yeah, Cuso, uh there, which is uh, Dave Filoni's a huge fan of those. Uh, Embo is one of the characters that he voiced actually on Clone Wars, and he's of that of that species, and that's where they originated. Um, and there, I, I caught some Zabrax. I caught some new stuff too, like, but it was just like Star Trek TV movie sort of, you know, yeah. makeup effects. I just think it's funny that they have like. I mean, they do have a big budget, but it, it clearly seems like they have like an alien extra pool that they kind of pull in whenever they have a cantina scene or something like they have like all the makeup made up and they just like put different actors in, in there. And I wouldn't be surprised if they just blew all the money on this scene on John Leguizamo's Gore Koresh puppet thing. Is that a person in a in a puppet head or is that CG? I can't even tell. But. I, that was such an interesting character to me because, and I put this in my review, but it looked like if you took the 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 Cyclops from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and put and like cast Peter Boyle as like wizard 
from Taxi Driver or like Outland in the part. And that's what that character ended up and why John Leguizamo was doing it. I honestly thought it was Josh Brolin the first time I was listening to it. Oh, that's interesting because when the when I heard him talk in the trailer, I actually thought it was Favreau. Oh, interesting. But I mean, I didn't know who it was until I saw the credits. And obviously, John has worked with uh, John has worked with John before on the movie Chef. So there's the connection there. Um, that character is a how do you pronounce the alien uh, Abyssin? Is that the alien uh, race that he's playing? The one-eyed alien race? Um, uh, give me a second and I can look. But <laughs> San, I think, San Diegan. <laughs> I, I think it's an Abby, which I think might be like one of the aliens that was in the cantina or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm very bad at like the background alien kind of creatures and stuff like that. But I, I mean, ha- I still use the like, oh, that's a... I mean, I know that it's an Ithorian, but yeah. I will also be like, oh, it's totally a hammerhead. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> I'm, I'll use all of those different things. You know, another, uh, another thing here, there's another cameo in the scene. There is an artist named David Cho. Cho. Uh, he has a cameo. He's like yelling in the crowd. And I'm not, do you guys, do either of you know who David Cho is? I don't. Uh, he's a famous artist. Uh, he he's a graffiti artist. So that, that this goes with your graffiti theory, uh, Brian. And um, in 2005, he was hired by Sean Parker to paint a mural in the early Facebook offices. This is when like Facebook first started, and uh, he thought Facebook was ridiculous and pointless. But um, he's kind of a gambler, and instead of instead of uh, like they offered to pay him like a really low amount of cash. Or give him stock in the company, and instead he he chose the stock, and uh, the stock is now worth uh, I think like three hundred million dollars. Oh my so, god, that's amazing! Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if he's Favreau's friend or not, but uh, he is friendly with Sasha Gray, who is not in this episode, but is in this season somewhere. And also in the credits, I learned that he is the one who is credited for creating the graffiti in that opening scene. So. And if you're going to, you know, spend that much money on graffiti for the background, maybe you're going to use that <laughs> later, too. Yeah, that's a good point. Good. I wonder if he is going to be the person who does Sabine's graffiti. That I would... mean, if we even get Sabine. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Or maybe he'll, yeah. be, he'll uh, be Star Wars Banksy and there's like an, an episode where Mando is trying to figure out who it is. <laughs> okay. Uh... <laughs> sure. Okay, Koresh tries to uh, gamble with Mando for his best car armor. Mando's not interested in gambling. So Gore shoots the Gamorrean in the ring and the room clears out. Uh, Koresh's guards surround Mando with guns and uh, surprisingly... uh, By the way, do you think Koresh is a reference to um, the cult leader, David Koresh? I, I mean, <laughs> it, it, I thought that, too. I was I was wondering what the connection was. And he's got a really another interesting line, too, where he swears on the Gotra, which is the droid Gotra, which is the syndicate of like um, it's it's basically imagine the Godfather run by droids and their whole thing is like we're going to liberate droids. And so for him to be involved in that, maybe there is some weird cult-like behavior. Who knows? Hey, where's that oh. Where's that show? I want to see that show. <laughs> see, this is why we have Brian on this podcast, because I, I knew nothing about this whatsoever. That, that is fantastic. Um, 
Okay, well, Koresh doesn't want the child, surprisingly. He wants the Beskar. And uh, the child knows what's coming and closes his prim before Mando takes out everybody. Uh, Koresh runs away. Uh, it's kind of funny seeing, like, this short alien dude kind of try to make a run for it. But uh, Mando ties him up, and he pleads with uh, Mando. Uh, he oh, That's where he swears on, on the... The Gotra, yeah. Gotra? Yeah, that, I was going to ask you about that. So interesting that you knew that. Okay. Um, uh, he promises that he will not die by his hands, but asks for information on where uh, he can find a Mandalorian, because this guy knows where. And he says the one he knows is on Tatooine. Uh, Mando leaves him hanging up, shoots out the light, leaving the creatures of the city to have at him. So that 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 is the end of the cold open title chapter to reveal the marshal. Do we know? Uh, do we know what those creatures are? Uh, no, I I mean we don't even know what planet he's on. I mean they could be. I mean it it depends on the planet because maybe it's another one of those like they're low threats, you know, situations yeah. when they're on Lothal or whatever. Um, or they could be Fearnox, which are sort of those uh, creatures that were in Rebels that that were like the kind of like the creatures in pitch black where they only operate in shadow. And that's why he closed, closed the light. I wouldn't be surprised if they were fear knocks actually. Yeah. That, that was, that was cool. It was like an, uh, almost like an attack the block kind of scene. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I didn't. Yeah. That, that, that is good reference for sure. Also one thing I'm wondering, I, I wonder if every season we're going to get just one time when Mando uses his whistling birds just like we did in the first season, because I'm wondering how hard it is to, like, restock that. Because in the first season, he was, like, specially given it by the armorer, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she says straight up, like, these are rare. Don't overuse them. Yeah. And he goes and uses – he blows them all that episode. Yeah, exactly. And so then now, now he uses them all here in this first episode. So I wonder if we'll get it again or if it just every season the first episode will have him using those and that's it. See, Brad, now now it makes sense. They're going to have a whole episode dedicated to him trying to get more Whistling Birds. There you go. That's going to be the mission of the week. Um, okay, so after the cold open, we don't need to discuss the Marshall. The Marshall's pretty self-explanatory, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or, or is there any kind of subtext there of, like, is it more than just it's Cobb Vanth? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot more to Cobb Vance's story than we got here, but I think they gave a really good recap of who he was uh, without diving, you know, without getting too far into the weeds. Um, I think it's interesting that Chuck Wendig's version from Aftermath of how he gets the armor is a little different, though it's essentially the same. There's a little bit more of a fight for him to get it, but that could easily be explained away that this was a flashback and he's not the most reliable narrator. Um, one of the other interesting threads that I was sort of hoping they'd pick up is that Vanth also saw that there was that power vacuum that that existed on Mos Pelgo or in on Tatooine in Mos Pelgo specifically with Jabba's death. And he went and found a hutling uh, and he had actually run into Malakili, the Rancor Keeper, and offered him a job to raise this hutling so that they could fill the power vacuum with a hut that they controlled. Um, so so Vanth is working a little bit ahead in the future as far as what uh, as far as keeping Mos Pelago safe from people like the mining syndicate. And that's all in what the first aftermath book, I think. Uh, I think. 
think there's some in one of the later ones too, but yeah, like a lot of it's in the first after- aftermath book. Okay, so back from the the title, the Razorcrest lands uh, in the dock, uh, operated by how do you pronounce her name? Pelly Moto, I guess. That's that's what I would guess, but it's Amy Sedaris. That's all anybody needs. Yeah. I don't know. I know I'm alone in this opinion, but she really annoys me in this role. No, I did not like her. I I was she was one of the things that I was like not a fan of in the first season. I thought that if there was one episode that kind of I thought was going to rub people the wrong way, it was going to be the one that she was in. I think she worked a lot better here than she did in in episode five of season one. Yeah. uh, So Mando is now okay with her fit droids giving the Razorcrest a like a, uh, I don't know, a, a, to fix the problems, like a tune a t- up, tune up, yeah. Uh, so does this does this mean that the the Mandalorian arc about trusting droids is over? Is it like, are, are we going to explore that more, or is like, is that what he's he learned in the first season? And like, we're now he's now okay with droids. I I mean. We'll have to see. We'll we'll need more evidence, but you know, at least he trusts her. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone back. Hey, if if you're going to be annoyed at any droids, you should be annoyed at the pit droids. They they they, they like bring some like seek uh, some uh, prequel error s- silliness here. Oh, I love that! Like that, it's they're the Three Stooges every time, and I love every moment of it. The other droid that I was surprised to see was R five, and that was one of those those winks and nods that. I think we probably could have done without, but especially the really sloppy repair job on his motivator. Yeah. So they actually, I, that's something that was actually established in the first season. Cause you, you see him rolling around when, uh, in actually in the, in the Tatooine episode as well. So he, we already knew he was there somewhere. And like, there was even, there was even, um, like an Easter egg video that highlighted like the attention they paid to making it, you know, look like he had, uh, been repaired poorly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I I think my problem with this reference, and this was the only reference that annoyed me too, Brian, is that it's kind of like the naming him out loud is like, come over here, R five. Like I don't know, it just felt like, oh yeah, it's the droid that was from A New Hope that had the bad motivator that you know caused R two to go to Luke Scott. You know, it's like a big part of the Skywalker saga. Um, so okay, so he's looking for lost. Pelgo, which Lost Pelgo, was that ever mentioned before the Aftermath Saga? Is that something that was No, I think that's I think that was an invention of of Wendig's. Okay. Um the so R5 is now in her control and uh pulls up a map. Uh you can't really see anything. It's an old mining settlement. Uh he takes her to a speeder bike uh so he can be a bit more inconspicuous and uh the child loves riding. Um, oh, child Ch- loves everything this episode. He loves watching, you know, the Gamorreans fight. He loves ride, you know, like looking at the side of the <laughs> the, the speeder he bike. He didn't like the crate dragon. He hid in the spittoon. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Um, also, didn't didn't seem to like the those uh, those um, the massifs, the Tuscan Raider dogs, the one that was like licking his chops, looking at him near the bonfire, and he's like, mm. yeah, 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 I'm gonna get eaten here. Um, one thing I want to point out that I found really interesting um, about R5 giving that map is that she's convincing him it exists the same way um, Jocasta New is convincing Obi-Wan that Kamino doesn't exist. 
right? There's that that thematic similarity, and the both of them are ending up dealing with a clone of Django Fett by the end of that journey. I'm just glad that R5 had the whole map instead of half the map. Yeah. <laughs> and we did spend a whole episode trying to find the other piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's funny, you know, like, and people would say, like, why would R5 have a map to Boba Fett? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the um, Why would Boba Fett okay. leave behind a map if he didn't want to be found? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Mando, we see Mando doing some sign language with the Tuscans around a fire. Uh, we... Uh, we drive by those like rat creatures in the deserts. Those aren't womp rats. They're, what are they? No, those are scurriers. Those you first saw those in the Star Wars special edition release of A New Hope. They were added in then, and George Lucas used them again in Attack of the Clones. And so they've been sort of natives of Tatooine since 1997. Yeah, I incorrectly identified an actual womp rat as uh, one of those guys in one of the videos I did. But so I, I got yelled at by lots of Star Wars fans. Um, yeah, they'll so, do that. So, so I, I know it's not a Womp Rat. Although the Womp Rats get name checked like that's probably the only other reference in this episode that I kind of was like this is a little overboard. He, like they mentioned Womp Rats like two or three times. I love that turn of phrase he used, though, like, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, both sons shine on a Womp Rat's tail every now and you know what I mean? Like that yeah. that. It was just a really great turn of phrase that I could see. Uh, I could see how they they came up with it and why they did, and it felt very unique to the world. Yeah. Uh, so Mando arrives in this little settlement. Doesn't seem like much of anything. The designs in the building feel very like Ralph McQuarrie inspired. Like it looks like they've kind of maybe even took some of like the the painting the details from his paintings. Um, Mando inquires with the bartender in the empty cantina. Uh, He's looking for, you know, another Mandalorian. And that's when the marshal, uh, he finds that the marshal wears a Mando armor. And just then, who comes through the door? But it is what looks to be Boba Fett or actually someone in Boba Fett's armor. It's uh, immediately, you can tell it's Timothy Oliphant. Uh, he asks him to join him for a drink. Uh, they're drinking the same blue liquid from... Spotchka. Yeah, I thought that was like something that was just in like that one planet or whatever, but apparently it's also on Tatooine. Oh no. Um, uh, so what were you going to say? I was going to say that's sort of a thing on star Wars, especially Tatooine. Like the massifs were on Geonosis and George Lucas is like, what if they're on Tatooine too? And <laughs> you know, same with the, um, the the Nunas, the little, you know, sort of roast turkey sorts of birds from Naboo, they're also on Tatooine. It seems like everybody just dumps wildlife and stuff like that on Tatooine. And why not shrimp vodka? Which yeah. is what I assume Spotchka is. Yeah. Um, so uh, Cobb Vanth removes his helmet and admits that he's never met a real Mandalorian. Um, and he says, I, I figure only one of us is walking out of here. But I see that little guy, and I think maybe I pegged you wrong. Uh, so, um, how should we? Okay, so they're they're about to have this like kind of like this showdown, right, of sorts in the cantina yeah. showdown of sorts, and there's this big earthquake that pushes them outside, and they, we see this like huge movement beneath the sand, a uh, in a very cinematic, spectacular fashion. A bantha is eaten. But this huge underground creature. It's such a cool sequence. What did you guys think? 
I mean, I think you said it. Okay. It was cool. <laughs> um, the the dragon noise that the creature makes is it, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think you put this in your piece too. So I'm, uh, uh, that Ben Kenobi mimics in A New Hope to scare the sand people. Uh, I didn't put that in my piece, but it is the same. It is the same stuff, and you can you can see that they're they're using the Blu-ray release sort of version of the sound, but they toned it way down so it doesn't sound quite so silly. Oh my god, it sounds like a, which, sounds like a cartoon in the Blu-ray. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is the reason George Lucas wanted to change the sound in the first place is because it was from the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons. It was like a stock sound that they had from those. Oh my gosh, it sounds more like a cartoon now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, you know, I was always annoyed by that in the special editions, but now, like, I feel like they've made it make sense and, like, have greater meaning? Maybe? Yeah. I, I, I... it, it it is definitely one of the very very few changes that bothered me in the special editions, but I've come to ter- I've come to peace with it. Yeah. So uh, Cobb Vanth admits that maybe we can work something out. The child peeks out of that bowl that he was hiding in on the floor. Hopefully that wasn't like a spittoon. Do they have spittoons I, in Star Wars universe? Why wouldn't they? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. They're, they're, um, I mean, so- they have death sticks, so there has to be like chewing death sticks, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we learned that this was death a crate. Pucks. <laughs> death pucks, yeah. Uh, we learned this is a crate dragon. Uh, have we seen a crate dragon before in live action? Not in the flesh. We do see in A New Hope, uh, 3PO outside the bones of a crate dragon. Um, in 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 his when he's flagging down the Jawas, but I don't believe we've seen one in person. By the way, in live action at all. That artificial skeleton used in A New Hope is still in the desert, the filming location. I remember reading that, like, during the filming of Attack of the Clones, they they visited, the crew visited that site and still they could find pieces of the skeleton out there. So, And it's funny, it was from a different movie, too. Like, it was out there from some other movie, and they're like, we could dress this up and use it for Star Wars. (laughs) And now it becomes this big, huge creature, one of the biggest creatures in the galaxy. Um, okay, so Cobb has been protecting this town for years, but the dragging is too much for him to take on alone. He asks Mando for help, and Cobb knows uh, where it lives and offers to take Mando there. Um, you you mentioned in your piece that the the bartender here has some kind of connection, yeah, yeah. to Timothy Oliphant. So the bartender is actually um, the the. The bartender was the bartender in Deadwood. Um, it was uh, W. Earl Brown who played, yeah, the bartender in in Deadwood is the bartender here as well. And this, and this is a this is a character from Return of the Jedi too, right? Um, I mean, he's of the same species. Uh, in the credits, they only refer to him as the Weequay proprietor. Okay. Oh, because so, I thought someone like specifically called him Weakway, which is what made me think that that was just the specific name of the same character from Return of the Jedi. Uh, that's a that's a species. Oh, okay. So that's uh, that seems kind of weird. That's kind of it, yeah. The Weakway, like uh, Hondo Anaka, is a Weakway, right? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Because yeah. like I, that's so weird that he calls him Weakway then. Also, the um, he's just being a jerk. Yeah, at that'd that be point. like that'd be like like walking walking yeah. around referring to people by just their race. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, kind of racist. 
<laughs> but yeah, in Return of the Jedi, the uh, the the skiffs on the yeah the opening scene, they're also weak ways. Um, okay, so Vance Speeder looks bigger and cooler than Mando's, and immediately I said to Kitra, I was like, that looks like it was made out of pod racer parts. I I think I, I mean it's. 100% the design is based on Anakin Skywalker's pod yeah. racer. And this is something I really, I, this is one of the ways that I really like these winks and nods because this is design that can tell a story. And I got into more depth in this in, in my review piece for slash film, but I don't think, I don't feel like this was just them saying like, let's slap Anakin's pod racer in here. I think the design was very purposeful in that it can tell a story about that place where Anakin Skywalker was the first human ever to win a pod race and he Qui-Gon sold his pod. And so naturally they're going to be, you know, the people who would buy it would be interested in monetizing it in different ways and then basing a speeder design off of it and having that be around on Tatooine makes so much sense. And it's just really exciting to see that kind of stuff and spin those stories about how and why his speeder would have the look and feel of Anakin Skywalker's pod racer. That's, that's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that. I just, I kind of just thought of it as this whole idea of them establishing like this, this system that exists of where you like, they salvaged so much uh, on this planet of whether they took a pod racer engine and they turned it into a speeder bike. Um, cause I, cause I did think that it was kind of weird that it so closely resembled Anakin's, um, design because as we've seen in phantom menace and you know even like the pod racer video game all the pod racers look incredibly different from each other so to have one that looks yeah. very very similar to anakin's was felt kind of almost like too much fan service but i but i like your perspective on this becoming almost like a merchandise grab like hey get a pod racer that looks like anakin skywalker's pod racer <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's the yarn I told myself when I saw it. And I'm sure other like exactly like you said, too, like maybe they salvaged it. I found that 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 if if that was the perspective I had on it, I'd be less interested in it. But but I always aim to tell myself the story that's going to make me like Star Wars the most. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't I wasn't necessarily thinking that it was exactly Anakin's pod racer, but just the idea of, of any pod racer being salvaged and used in that way was cool to me. Yeah, well, but well, that's. I was gonna say I'm I'm that nerd that did the side by side comparison. I did too. <laughs> you can and it, and it does um it only has two of those prongs instead of three. Yeah, but that could have broke off. But also the paint job is different. But I guess you could you could reason that over the years has been repainted and repurposed and you know maybe in another pod racer and then eventually in the speeder. Um, but. But I think the best thing about it is that they're using the design to tell those stories. And it's really hard to tell those sorts of stories in other franchises or universes because we're not revisiting the same places over a huge stretch of time the way we can in Star Wars. And I think the design has always told a story in Star Wars. And I think it's really smart that they're doing that here in Mandalorian. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think what I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate all of what you said about this reference, but what I most appreciate is that nobody like went up to it and was like, oh my God, this is a piece of Anakin Skywalker's pod racer. It was the first pod racer, you know, what, like, yeah. what, what could have happened if it was... I'm sorry, Brian. I know you love the. No, no, no. I feel like no, 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 no. You're fine. But I loved that, like, when she was looking at the, um, the map of Mos Espa, you could see the arches from the pod race, uh, you oh, know, sort of represented, represented on the map and stuff like that. I think 
Filoni is rubbing off on Favreau in really great ways where he can reference the prequels in ways that work really well for people like me who love the prequels, but also for people who didn't necessarily care for them uh, to acknowledge them without without getting too into the weeds and reminding people about how much what they didn't like about it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so Cobb explains his story, talks about how the Death Star blew up and uh, the occupation that took over this small mining town and how it became a slave camp overnight. Uh, This is interesting because is this the first real flashback we've had in a live-action Star Wars thing? No. Right Skywalker, we had the flashback to Luke and Leia training. We Uh, also had season one where uh, uh, Din Djarin and his rescue as an orphan, as a kid... uh, Like, I feel, so I feel this like is... that's memories, though. I feel like that's like... Well, that's what this is. I, I guess, yeah. Well, no, but he's telling a story. I, I feel like like they've tried to skirt this for a long time. Like in the Well, I mean, Rey's a Skywalker was, was exactly this, that. Yeah, Luke, yeah really? Luke's okay. telling that story to Rey. Yeah. He's explaining where the, light, where the lightsaber yeah. came from and all that jazz. Maybe you're right. But I remember Force Awakens. Like, they, like, it had to be like it was a Force touch, and it took her into the thing. And then also... You know, uh, even even in Rise of Skywalker, there's moments where she has to touch things to kind of realize where they are from and what. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right with the with that that training with the training sequence. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not the first flashback. So I guess we're going to get more flashbacks. But it is the first flashback we've got to someone else in the galaxy seeing uh you know remembering the destruction of the second death star and that was one of the things i really loved was for one that was that was the special edition explosion um they used yeah. the same elements and it and not just the expl- i mean like they just copied the film and put a put the grain on it but um i really love seeing that stuff about how the rest of the galaxy is celebrating um after the destruction yeah, and of course, like everybody remember, like it's it's an event that would, like it's like what nine eleven was to us. Like everybody has a story of where they were when they learned, you know, that happened. So yeah, it's it's just very relatable in that way. Um, I I know you mentioned in your thing that uh, the, the fact that they're doing flashbacks uh, excites you because we might be, be able to see something that you really want out of season two or actually this series, The Mandalorian. Yeah, I really was. So last season when Moff Gideon talked about the Night of a Thousand Tears and the Mandalorian Purge, I feel like them pulling in these flashbacks gives us an opportunity to actually see that rather than to have characters just talk to us about it. Yeah, that's cool. Because yeah, I, I like hearing about it like in like little mysterious ways, but it would be cool to finally see that realize some, somehow, some way. Um, okay, so Vanth... Uh, he helped a bartender escape. He grabbed the Camtono filled with Cyclax crystals. Is this a reference we should know, Brian? I don't know. Uh, I think this was also in Aftermath, the Silicax crystals. Silicax, yeah. Um, the, uh, he wandered for days in the desert before being saved by a Jawa sandcrawler. And that's where he found out that the Jawas wanted the crystals. And he asked for the Boba Fett armor in exchange. And uh, you're saying that this story is a little bit different than we see in Aftermath. Yeah, it is. In Aftermath, I, there was someone else sort of looking for the uh, there was someone else looking for the armor as well. Um, and they were actually sort of um, 
he sort of sought out the Jawas and bargained with them for the armor and there was someone else there and and they were trying to get it because they were part of the the red key which is this syndicate that was out finding like artifacts and things and he shoots this guy or no the red key raiders was the the um like just the bad guys in the area the pirates that he was dealing with and they were trying to get the armor also and vanth killed these guys to get it but again vanth telling this story and saying like obviously maybe he could be trying to make himself appear more sympathetic like I was dying and the Jawas sold me this armor as this last thing is a much more sympathetic story to tell a Mandalorian than, uh, yeah, me and a bunch of pirates were fighting over it and I'm the one who won. I I wonder, like, I mean, I kind of like that the books are that they're like different perspectives on the story. Like it's always, you know, the film or the TV show. There's like the hierarchy of canon and what like is probably the truth of the matter. And there can be other, you know, from a certain point of view, different, you know, ways the story is told over time. And I'm, I'm wondering if here is it just that they needed to tell a more simplified story for this TV show or like maybe this will come back. In that, like, you know, you can't trust the story that comes out of certain people in this universe, in the show. So, yeah, um, no, I, 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 and which will be, I think that was the whole theme of Last Jedi too, though, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so Vanth returned to Los Pelgo. He single-handedly took out the gang occupying the town. Uh, there's a particularly cool shot here with Vanth using that infamous missile on the jetpack uh, to take out the escaping gang members. And uh, Mando and Banth uh, arrive at the Tusken Raider camp and uh, a bunch of their creatures. Do you know what these creatures are? The Massifs? That's what they are, Massifs? Where have we seen them? Yeah. Um, we first saw them in Attack of the Clones. Like I said, we saw them on Geonosis as well. Uh, Anakin... Uh, has to sneak by some in order to rescue his mother and murder all the Tuscans, uh, um, and so that's that's where they were. That's where they were first. Wait a minute, seen. that's that's not on Geonosis, um, is it? Isn't that on Tatooine when he goes to find? No, that's on Tatooine, but you see massive on oh, Geonosis okay, as gotcha. well. Oh, yeah. Um, well, uh, okay, so they they come and they're approaching them, and and uh, they're they're kind of scary, but Mando shows them compassion like a human dog. And uh, they kind of find, you know, they're, they're lovable. They're like my, my French bulldog. They, 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 they seem like good pets. Um, is this the most visual presentation of the message of this episode of kind of like, uh, you know, two different, you know, the, these humans in Los Pelgo think the Tuscan Raiders are like these savage creatures that they'll never work together with them. But like, it's just like if, you know, come together, they could realize that they, you know, I, th- I feel like there's something there, right? Yeah, I think that it's also um, indicative of how much the Mandalorian has changed as well. If you look at his approach in the other episodes where he was sort of uh, uniting people to fight against something. Um, he's learning from this and he's doing it better uh, in the, in these ways. But I think absolutely... Um, them coming together with the Tuscans to fight a common enemy is really powerful, especially since the Tuscans have been coded 
for so long. I mean, George Lucas did this on purpose and he purposely made them Tuscan Raiders rather than, you know, just Native Americans. But I mean, Tuscan Raiders for the longest time in Star Wars have been nothing but um, a sci-fi version of racist stereotypes about Native Americans yeah. in Western cinema. And so bringing them in this way and adding that nuance to them and then forcing the locals to make peace with them, to fight together with them, um, I think is a really interesting choice to, I, I don't necessarily say rehabilitate some of that stuff because I think George Lucas was doing it very purposefully with the right intentions, but to add, add that nuance to it. I think that I think it's really interesting. I think it's a really interesting story point for for this episode and the broader Star Wars mythology. Yeah, and there's a lot of cool details here, like you know how I mean, Mando's already talked to them before with sign language. We see the Tuscans caring for and brushing the Bantha's teeth. Um, so I, I think it kind of gives like makes them like oh they're not the monsters that maybe the series has kind of portrayed them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they were the they were the boogeyman in in horror stories because they just had a different culture and a different understanding of the world. So uh, the Tuscans open this like egg or orb. I'm not sure what it is, and they hand it to Vanth, and uh, Mando says he should drink it, but uh, Vanth doesn't want to. It stink. It, it smells. So uh, you know, and it, they kind of have this scuff up here. He's saying like the monsters can't these monsters can't be reasoned with. And uh, in your piece, you said that this is kind of like an homage to Temple of Doom. Yeah, I really this this moment where he's like, you're insulting them really reminded me of that moment where Willie Scott is refusing all the food in the village. And, and Indy, you know, tells her like you're insulting them and you're embarrassing me. <laughs> um and and that was the vibe I got from yeah. that. Maybe I see too much Temple of Doom in everything, but it, it felt very apt in this case. Also, I feel like the the music um, in this episode, it might be that they're like at times like walking over these sand dunes and stuff, but had very like Indiana Jones kind of uh, feel to them. Almost like Indiana Jones means like some Michael Giacchino's like, like the walking, I forget what the score is, but from Lost, where they're like out on a mission walking. Like I, I, I got a, a Lawrence of Arabia kind of vibe to yeah. it, especially when the the Tuscans arrive into the town for the first time, and it's it's almost like you know Lawrence and the Arabs taking Aqaba almost when they arrive um, with that emotional swell of the music. Yeah, so they ride on the Banthas into the desert while Vanth and Mando watch from afar, and they go to the this abandoned Sarlacc pit. The Sarlacc has been eaten. Is this the same Sarlacc from Return of the Jedi? What, Brad, what do you think? Um, I mean, the way that they they talk about Sarlaccs is that they're probably more plentiful than we think. Like, there's not just one on Tatooine, so maybe, but also probably not. This was very decidedly not the pit of Carcoon. If it were the pit of Carcoon, they would have shown us like debris from Jabba's sail barge. That's true. They, they would That's have good. gone for the more obvious, like, "Oh, look where we are, guys." Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then here's the obvious question. All right, I think it might be obvious, but who ate the sarlacc? <laughs> a, a bigger fish. <laughs> okay. 
Um, the Tuscan puts a Bantha out as a sacrifice. Apparently, they've been doing this for some time so that they won't come and like destroy their like they 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 kind of have been figuring out like the eating cycle. So it's kind of like offering food to the to the the you know the god, I guess. It's it's really classic dragon mythology, right? Like instead of feeding virgins to the dragon, they're feeding banthas, but it's essentially the same thing. Like us appeasing it will keep it docile and not attacking us at random. We can control that a little bit. And the funny thing is they they put that bantha out there, but the crate dragon comes out and eats the raider, not the bantha. <laughs> Which I, I think the bantha would have more meat, so why didn't he go after the bantha? Whatever. Anyways, uh, the child is sad. Uh, using a, uh, a skull and a bunch of rocks, they try to come up with a plan. Um, what, uh, Mando and Vanth return to the town to try to get some recruits for this mission. They're going to need a lot more people. Uh, the townspeople are resistant at first. Uh, but killing the creature will not only mean that the town will be safe from the crate dragon, but also this peace treaty with the sand people. So that, you know, win-win. Uh, so the townspeople get into some shouting matches with the sand people. Vanth keeps the peace. Uh, Banthas are used to haul the explosives into the dune sea. Um you know, we we get the, some beautiful shots there. Like like you said, like Lawrence of Arabia, uh, you know, a bunch of banthas in a row, bantha tracks. Uh, the 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 dragon is sleeping when the, when they arrive. The Tuscans work uh, with the Lost Pelgo people to set up weapons. They need to get the creature to charge so that they can detonate the bombs underneath the belly. That is where he is the most weakest. Uh, the Tuscans have a, a, like these huge crossbow style launchers, and they. They lure the dragon out, sending grappling hooks into the creature, and uh, but the creature retreats back into the hole. And this is where like the aspect ratio changes, which is kind of cool. Is it, it? It kind of felt like when you are watching, you know, a movie in IMAX, and the aspect ratio changes from like widescreen to like full screen IMAX. You know, I thought about this, and it made me wonder if at some point they considered having an IMAX event for the season premiere and they couldn't do it because of the pandemic. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting theory right there. I will say that Hal Hickle, who does the, what, the visual effects? He, he, right? Yeah, he's the supervisor on the show. Yeah, he tweeted about it this morning and was just like, no, we just made it 16 by 9 because we thought it was going to be cooler. Yeah, uh, yeah, it goes from... Uh, Two, three, five to sixteen by nine. Yeah, so standard TV. Uh, they, they they have to lure it back out. They do so by. Oh wait, before I go further, uh, what what did you think of that, Brian? I didn't notice. I'll be honest. The first two times I watched it this morning, I didn't notice, and then I saw the conversation about it, and I'm like, wait, maybe I did notice. And then I went back and looked at it again, and it was like really cool but honestly i was so invested in the story and maybe it was just i was watching it really early in the morning before the sun went up all the lights were out and i didn't <laughs> recognize the black bars anyway um i don't know i just i didn't notice it i was so invested in the story both of my first viewings what, what about you Brad? Uh, so i didn't notice when it started but i noticed when it ended and i was like oh they must have done this whole sequence in 16 by 9 <laughs> Yeah, I had kind of the same thing happen to me. I didn't notice when it like expanded, but I at some point during that sequence, I was like, "Wait a second, this isn't widescreen anymore." So yeah, um... which it makes me wonder if maybe 
maybe that wasn't necessarily the pl- I don't know that's that transition seems harder in a theater where you're going to move curtains and stuff but I you're right like you know Christopher Nolan will have like hey here's the IMAX sequence and it drops in the middle and nobody nobody cares yeah um okay so they have to lure it back out they do so by shooting it from all sides the tension here is can they get it out far enough to set off the explosives you know it's very classic cinema here um the crate dragon spits up some acid like slime and they hit the detonator. I don't think it's dead me either. It comes back and spits up more slime acid all over. Uh, it's, it's picking them off like womp rats. Again, I got to mention womp rats. Uh, Mando and Vanth work together to lure the dragon further out. Vanth uses targeting system in the missile to get his attention. Mando lures him to the Bantha strapped with bombs uh, the child is very concerned. We are led to believe that Mando has been eaten here. But just then, the ground opens up and the dragon spits out Mando, who has been probably shooting from the inside. Uh, and he hits the detonation switch. And uh, so the Bantha's dead, right? <laughs> Not only the yeah. Bantha, but the, yeah. So so they do end up killing one Bantha. One, one Bantha was harmed in the making of this uh the scene here um, <laughs> one thing one thing uh, um is uh at least I don't, I don't think you mentioned it, i think you glossed over it is that mando oh. uh gets Cobb vanth out of the way by hitting boba fett's jetpack <laughs> in the same way that han solo does from return of the jedi oh yeah yeah no that yeah. was good that yeah. was really good and i really i i can't oversell how much jaws there is here right it's it's combining story points from jaws like the Mando going Mando is really the the Quint character here, um, you know, sort of bringing the townsfolk and the law together to say, no, we're fighting this thing and here's how we're doing it. And Mando getting eaten with the explosives in the mouth is very much, you know, combining the story points of Quint getting eaten and then Brody shooting the, the air tank to kill the shark. But I really loved some of the cinematography, too. There were moments um, you know, that classic pull pull back of Chief Brody on the beach watching the danger and then the pull back from from the beach from his perspective, which is Spielberg quoting Hitchcock. And now we've got Favreau quoting Spielberg quoting Hitchcock. Um, <laughs> it's just really it's really fascinating stuff. I really I really love seeing those flourishes. By the way, does that move have a name? Like I know some people call it a dolly zoom I've always called it the Scorsese squeeze because Scorsese seems to like be the filmmaker that uses it the most in I modern think, times. But I know he didn't, you know, obviously it predates him with Hitchcock. I think, I think it's, I think people refer to it as the vertigo shot. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the Tuscans and Tatooine people, how do you, what are Tatooine people? Tatooine? Tatooinians? I don't know. Moss yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're not Earthlings. We are Americans. Yeah. We're Americans. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I forgot there for a second. I was like, uh, I don't know. Has, has next week happened yet? I don't know. Um, Tuscans and uh, so they're celebrating together. Uh, this um, so this episode of the Mandalorian is kind of. I feel like last season every episode was kind of a take on something. Like it was a take on, um, uh. Like the Seventh Sam, or, or like just different like myths and classic movies. I feel like this one is like on the like the old myth of like 
the white people who have to come together with the natives to destroy the bigger threat. You know, that has been retold time and yeah. time again, you know, probably most recently with like what Avatar. So um, uh, the Raiders are seen stripping the meat off the bones of the dragon and Baby Yoda is touching the meat, which I'm sure is going to be memed all over the place because who, who doesn't like touching meat? Um, I guess this means they should be they should have enough food to feed them for months. So we don't have to like watch them go off on an episode to like, oh, we need to earn some money to get some food or something. Yeah, and the other the other really interesting point about that was the um Tuscan Raider pulling out the crate dragon pearl and oh, yeah. hoisting it up above his head and that that that's going to make a lot of nerds very happy. Um the crate dragon pearl is something that in the legends timeline and in the current timeline even it's been like sort of like the biggest hunting trophy you can get in um the biggest hunt- hunting trophy that you can get in on Tatooine because it means you've killed a crate dragon, but also Darth Revan had one and it meant something important there. And um, it's been in the canon for a long time. And I think people would be excited about that. Yeah, and I think like, like the idea behind it is some like reptiles ingest stones and boulders that helps them like, like break so, down the food inside them. And then this like these boulders kind of become you know smooth over time and become so so to get one level nerdier here okay um in the fantasy flight role-playing game there are like when their kyber crystals are very rare but when these big creatures the crate dragons actually consume bits of kyber crystal that's the one thing they can't digest they will digest the rocks for exactly that reason but they can't handle the kyber crystals and the kyber crystals sort of form there and that's what gets coded into the the pearl so in the role-playing game you can actually create lightsabers out of the the kyber uh from a crate dragon pearl ah i did read that so i was wondering how that was possible i just thought it was like a particular type of stone or something but that makes sense it's actually kyber sometimes yeah yeah um which is i'm pushing my glasses up the bridge of my nose i apologize yeah (laughs) and apparently these are you know like you said very valuable they're worth upwards of a hundred thousand credits each and uh tuscan raiders it's a sign of bravery um yeah that's very cool i didn't know anything about the 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 pearls so that's a very cool you know expanded mythology there coming into play um i think one of the most interesting parts of this uh the ending here is vanth actually hands over the the armor to mando he he's a man of his word but why doesn't mando leave him with boba's armor i I like i mean i get it like he is not a mandalorian he's like wearing like this thing that's considered sacred this armor like um but Mando doesn't need the armor. So like well, why, why not leave it with him like he, he he's as far as Mando knows, at least from what he's been told by Vanth, like he's kind of like, you know, the marshal of that town and he can put it, use it. Put it put it this way, right? Say say you're a say you're in the military and you roll into a town and you're helping the town and the person there is dressed like you in the same military uniform, but <laughs> they are not 
They are not part of your military. They're not part of your unit, and they're going to end up representing you and yeah. everything you stand for if you allow them to continue that. I think him not killing him is the is the concession. <laughs> yeah, that he made. Well, especially because Amanda. Yeah, Mando's got a code, and like they're not supposed to like leave Mandalorian armor behind so imagine another way peter you're you're at disneyland and somebody is wearing an ordinary adventures t-shirt and somebody is pretending yeah. they're you <laughs> <laughs> so 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 in that scenario i'd rip the shirt off their back and let them walk around disneyland yeah shirtless. exactly because you don't want them messing up your reputation <laughs> i don't think i'd do that it's not that they're just wearing the shirt it's that they're posting on your youtube yeah. channel okay. and they're yeah. and they're sleeping okay. with your girlfriend <laughs> oh god! Uh, this is kind of uh, when uh, when he gives him the armor at the end, he says, "You tell your people I wasn't the one who broke that." Was he talking about Luke cutting the grappling hook? No, I think he was talking about Han jer- jacking up the jetpack with his stick. Okay, yeah, yeah that, that that makes sense too. He was pointing specifically at the jetpack too, and they previously referenced that gag with him, you know. Yeah, yeah, with him shooting in the air. <laughs> that was so. I've got a story. I'll tell you about that later. Okay, I can't. Uh, you can't tell tell it on the the podcast. I, I can't. I can't. Okay. Uh, well, it, well, actually, I can <laughs> go uh, go look at the Star Wars data bank about that model of of jetpack, and it has that very known defect. Okay. Um, and. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what the, what you're trying to say, Brian. I don't know what I'm trying to say either, but it is a known. Uh, it, it is a known. Their significant problem. disadvantage was their vulnerability to external impact damage. One sharp blow with a stick could conceivably ignite the jetpack, causing all manner of unwanted performance <laughs> that could lead to significant bodily harm or even death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so this episode ends with Mando riding off into not the sunset, but the twin sunset. And uh, we pull back to reveal a man in silhouette. He has like some interesting weapons on his back. He looks pretty badass. And uh, this is who is this, Brian? I wish I knew. No, this is uh, Tamara Morrison, who is likely playing Boba Fett here. Uh, Tamara Morrison obviously was Django Fett in Attack of the Clones and the template for all of the clones, including his cloned son, Boba. Uh, Boba Fett did not get any growth acceleration so that he wasn't aging rapidly, which is what leads me to believe that this is probably Boba instead of another clone. The other clones that are still around in this era, like Captain Rex, um, were much, much older and grayer and, you know, with white beards and whatnot. What... Brad, what do you think of the return of Boba Fett? Um, I'm cautiously intrigued for now. Um, I, I'm also of the mind of like it seemed like it was better to have Boba Fett remain more of a, a mystery, be be dead kind of thing. Um, you know, obviously they expanded his story in the expanded universe that are now Star Wars Legends, but I I don't know. I'm interested to see what they can do with him. Um, especially, you know, now that he has, you know, a face and isn't just, you know, a masked Mandalorian bounty hunter anymore. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, if he, if he's desperate to get his armor back, how long he's been trying to 
track it down, what he's been doing. <laughs> Clearly, he's had some interactions with other people. He's, he has a gaffy stick. He has some other, like, weapons on his back. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested, but I just my, – my biggest concern about this season, especially based on everything we have learned, including the exclusive stuff that we found out um, at Slash Film – is that they're starting to push Mandalorian too far into the rest of the Star Wars stuff that we know about, when the greatest thing about Mandalorian's first season was that it was kind of treading in its own territory with these subtle winks and nods to other Star Wars things. And I just, I hope just with all the things we've heard so far that we're not just getting back into, you know, mixing and mingling with all the Star Wars stuff we've already seen over and over again. I, I, I will say, in defense of those who are making the show... Um, with Star Wars Rebels, Filoni was very careful in treading that line where the characters that started the show were still central in all of that. Even though the rest of Star Wars, the universe encroached on the story, the characters that we knew and loved that that began that journey still remained central to all of it and important and um, and and effective in in how that all worked that's fair i I think my my biggest concern is that the universe is already small enough by having the all the heroics and villainy tied to one single family spread across nine movies and i would just like it if well this is taking away from that i mean yes for, for sure but we're but now we're still tapping into characters that we've already seen stories fleshed out elsewhere you know plenty in you know rebels and clone wars and so I just, I, I just, I, I want them to continue to veer in new directions and keep giving us new stuff with just a sprinkle of familiarity. So I, I that's why I say I'm hoping that, this, like, like Brian says, that this will continue to really still focus on a lot of the new stuff and not get all caught up in, you know, Star Wars mythology that has been in the past. I will say this. I think the coolest thing about Boba Fett is that, like, we didn't really get to know much about him. The reason why he was badass is we never saw him underneath the mask. We didn't really get to learn about him in any great deal in proper canon, non-legends. And I think, like, our imaginations made him cooler than he could have been if, like, George had explored that more. And... What I'm worried about with him being back is that possibly we're going to get to learn more of Boba Fett and he's going to be less cool, I guess. But- I, for me, the character never got interesting at all until until the prequels. Mm-hmm. Like I was never interested in Boba Fett. Like it was just like he was a cool dude in a mask. But And even the interesting stuff about Boba Fett is stuff that I don't think they've explored well. And so if they explore that, um, I'd be interested in that, but I think the science fiction behind you're a clone and you have the face of your murdered father and the people who murdered your father are roaming around with uh, an army of people who look exactly like your father also at their back. Um, that's going to cause some rage issues and whatnot. And I think that's a way more interesting take on Boba Fett and what drives him than anything we got in the classic trilogy or even the the legends stories about him and if they explore with Boba Fett on this show what it's like chasing that um you know what it's like living up like growing up with that trauma and and coming into your own when you have the same face as literally 
millions of other people that that are in the galaxy i think that could be interesting but i don't get the impression they're going to have the space or the breathing room to explore that on this show that's an an interesting take on on boba fett but i I, just for me i think like peter says the the coolness of boba fett i think honestly just just came from just this the subtle physical acting that was that was done um by jeremy bullock it's just just the way that boba fett carried himself told you so much about him. And while they've instilled some of that in Mando as a character, or Din Djarin, if you you know want to call him by his real name, um, <laughs> I I just, I, I would have preferred to like, to have Boba Fett continue to be that kind of, uh, you know, side character who shows up every now and then. And as soon as he does, you know, you're like, oh shit, you know, some stuff's going to go down. Um, and you still, and, and obviously now that he is showing up, you're like, okay, well, something is bound to happen with this that will hopefully be interesting. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I think it'll be cool to see if he gets back in his, his armor again, but I just, I would have preferred that maybe he, like, this is a character that continued to be more shrouded in mystery than anything. You know, you know what I would love is if that's the last time we hear or see Boba Fett this season, <laughs> like, because that's what they did with season one, right? Like they just showed the spurs and the the ankle, and he kneels down on Fennec Shand, and that's it. That's all of it. And then maybe this season we get that extra shot of his face, and the next season he might get a whole scene. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. Uh, I mean, it does make sense that a show called The Mandalorian would, you know, have to touch upon the most famous. Mandalorian, at least, I mean, not in the, that galaxy, but in our galaxy. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say he's not a Mandalorian. Do you feel, though, do you feel so. like yeah. we'll, we'll, they'll do that thing that they do in TV sometimes where after following our, the main characters for a little bit, we'll get an entire episode dedicated to Boba Fett and what he's been up to? You know, they said, uh, was it Bob Iger on an early earnings call like earlier this year? Um which feels like a decade ago to the thanks to the pandemic. But he said something about how they were looking at spinning off shows from the Mandalorian. Maybe Boba Fett's journey could be teeing up that. And maybe they could be giving Temir Morrison a, a Boba Fett show, which wouldn't um, surprise me knowing that they already went into development with a Boba Fett story. And if they've got Temir Morrison on, on board and they said that they're pivoting away from movies taking the ideas for that Boba Fett show that even James Mangold was attached to most recently and turning that into a Disney plus series and then just teeing it up with the success of Mandalorian. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Or it could be teeing up a Boba Fett movie. I mean, they were working on uh, Josh Trank was working on the Boba Fett movie, which I, yeah. I had heard the script was fantastic. I don't know what it was about, but um, I, I guess. Boba my, Fett. Yeah. Boba, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess and, and it's, it's interesting here, too. I want to say this, too, that, like, you know, th- the stuff of this episode comes, you know, the origin of it is Aftermath, which was like one of those first books in the journey to The Force Awakens. And I think a lot of that, like the little details in that probably were fed from like the Lucasfilm story group. Like they were kind of like some of that stuff was from like Michael Arndt's early treatments of what JJ ended up working on and George Lucas's treatments and the, the story group. So I, they've been wanting to do Boba Fett for a while. So I, I'm guessing some of this was in the plans for a while, but um, okay. My big question to you is like, this takes place at least a few years after 
Return of the Jedi, right? Uh, yeah. So what has Boba Fett been up to in this time? Like, does he still want his armor back? Why did he wait until now to try to get it? Because this guy's been walking around as the general of the small well, mining town. I think, um, I think that that's sort of a question that we could ask, right? Like he's, I think he's clearly had some contact with the Tuscans because he's, he's wielding a gaffy stick and it looks like one of their slug throwing rifles. And Maybe he didn't know about the armor. Maybe he hadn't heard about it. Maybe he's been tracking it down. Walking through the desert without a mount, which is what it appears to be, it seems like maybe it could take you a year to catch up to people. Um, (laughs) You know, and maybe he's just chasing stories about it. Or maybe he did want to leave it behind until he heard some bit of information. Or There's a lot of, there's a lot of approach vectors to that. He wasn't born a Mandalorian, so I don't think there's like, probably this great tie to the armor like does he really? No, it's his dad's that? it's his dad's armor oh yeah yeah good point that's um, the thing about it like this is the last and as somebody who's struggling with the their identity versus the identity of their father whom they're a direct clone of um yeah like that's interesting that could be interesting that could be how they explore all that stuff Okay, the other question I wanted to pose to you guys, is this the last we're going to see of Cobb Vanth this season? Or do you think that that's going to be a continuing storyline that we might go back to later this season? Or or could Cobb Vanth be the spinoff TV show? I mean, the show the, sh- the show clearly Why? alludes to him coming back. is like, well, I hope we run into each other again is like damn straight. He doesn't say that. But um, and but I also I, I would love to see him back because, first of all, I thought Tim the Oliphant was great um in in yeah. this series so yeah bring him back would be awesome and i i, I just I, I wonder what his spinoff would be about and like if it's a spinoff then how is it not just justified in star wars <laughs> yeah i don't know but it, it's hard to imagine that timothy oliphant just signed on to like have this one appearance and maybe like show up in one more episode or something i mean like it's yeah, star yeah, wars exactly. though too like you know yeah, that yeah. any but they could get anybody. I mean, like, why would John, John Leguizamo be like, "Hey, kill me really quickly in Star Wars"? They just want to be in Star Wars. It, who was it? it was Daniel oh, Craig, I, right? Who Daniel it, Craig was just like, "I'll show up and be a a stormtrooper." Yeah, well, but he was also working on the soundstage next door. Like, it's not like yeah. this is a little bit. Well, I, I guess this is being shot in L.A. But um, I, I, I would pay enough, my own way to just just like sit in a bathroom somewhere <laughs> next to a scene that's happening. <laughs> Me, me yeah. too. Uh, but interestingly enough, I, when I was after I saw this last night, I I searched John's name and the Mandalorian because I was like wanted to make sure that who he was playing and all that stuff. And there was rumors back in 2018 when they were casting Mandalorian season one that he was going to be playing a character in that. So maybe he was originally up for a role in that. Did it didn't work out or something? Uh, because someone reported it. Maybe it was making Star Wars. Maybe it was you know one of those rumor sites. Who knows? But uh, it is interesting that he actually ended up. Hey, one thing I noticed, too, um, back going back to Cobb Vanth is uh, if you look at the concept art that they play during the credits, um, there's one piece uh, that shows Cobb Vanth in Boba Fett's armor. But he's not just wearing the armor. He's wearing like Boba Fett's full getup, like the like the the grayish jumpsuit under the armor and everything. He's not wearing like that red stuff under the armor like he is in this episode. Hmm. Do you think they like just like between the concept art and that that they decided? Yeah, I, 
that that was yeah i bet you much. they probably made a decision somewhere be like you know it probably doesn't make sense that he's also wearing his you know like his jumpsuit under the armor like he probably just like you know why would the jawas keep that and how it you know and get that and wouldn't it probably yeah. be damaged speaking of damage i'm curious as to why mando wasn't hurt by the venom saliva of the crate dragon because clearly it was hurting the tuscan raiders and yes i know he has beskar armor on but he's not doesn't have beskar armor on all over his body he's got cloth and stuff just like the tuscan raiders do so i w- it's water sealed i mean liquid sealed cloth oh, okay Brad. I was I was thinking about that too and I watched very carefully the second time I I was watching and they don't actually like disintegrate or anything like alien style they just kind of fall to the ground. It does sound like things are sizzling though and like there's it, it seems like it's a pretty pretty nasty thing that it does. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean if you're going to question any like, you know, you know, how do bombs drop in space or any of actually, those things, actually, but... that that's easily explained. Like I, I I've actually always hated that that nitpick because there's there's clearly yeah, a mechanism yeah. that's pushing the bombs, and like once you something has is given force and gravity, it just keeps going. So that's a dumb question about the last Jedi. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, Mand- Mando thinks he needs another Mandalorian to help him get to the child's home. Where do you think he's going to be heading next? Naboo, I don't know. Like it's it's so hard to predict where he might go next. Um maybe he goes to Mandalore, maybe he goes to Concord Dawn, maybe he goes to um any of those old places. Maybe he goes to where Sabine's family is from. That could be the the ice planet. Um the planet that Ursa Ren is on in Rebels when Sabine goes and talks to her or when they fight Gar Saxon is cr- cr- uh, cr- a, a snowy Cronest? is that what it is Cronest, cr- yeah um it's a snowy ice planet and we've seen there's a bunch of icy stuff coming from the trailer that we saw and he that he crashed yeah. lands there so that's that'll be interesting yeah yeah I, i'm just wondering why does mandalorian why does mando even think he needs a mandalorian to get him there like it, it feels so, like i don't connect the dots there but so the dots are that Mandalorians through antiquity have built their armor and and everything around their identity and their religion around fighting the Jedi, right? There's been times when they've been more at peace, like when Tar Vizsla created the Darksaber. Um, But there were, like, if anybody is going to know about Jedi and where he might be able to find them to give the kid back to, to them he might be able to track down stories from other Mandalorians who he knows have had uh, interactions with them. Also, Peter, I don't know if you've heard, but this is the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this also is the way in, in the, you mentioned the concept art before Brad, and there was one piece of concept art. I don't think was in the show. It was the child coming in close contact with one of those rat creatures. Oh like yeah. Yeah. You're right. Towards. Yeah, that, I would have liked to have seen that. Um, someone online mentioned that Sam Witwer has a cameo in this. Does anybody know where where he can be found? I I, no? I did not catch maybe he, that. Maybe, maybe yeah, he's one of it. like that that death squad or something. Yeah. Uh, lastly, I, I I I don't usually do this, but I I was the person that reported that Timothy Oliphant was going to be playing Cobb Vanth. 
So I, I want to pat myself on the back for this one because I, I, I rarely have a Star Wars scoop. And uh, this one uh, was proved to be true after many fanboys said that I was making stuff up. So there you go. <laughs> uh, I You deserve that pat on the back. <laughs> uh, but this was a whole lot of fun. We've, we've been on the phone for an hour and 20 minutes and I, I could go longer. This is just like, I don't know, this, this episode was so much fun. It was so much fun talking to you guys. Do you guys have anything more to say about this episode of Mandalorian? Sounds like no, good. I think, I think we, <laughs> we're all good. I'm interested to see what other John Favreau cohorts pop up throughout the season because he's brought some interesting people into the Star Wars universe, and uh, they've always been pretty unexpected. So I hope to see more of them in the coming episodes. Yeah, and because I, I'm sure there's some very smart people out there listening to this podcast, some very smart Star Wars geeks. If you noticed anything that we didn't or have any observations that we didn't touch on, you know, please send us your feedback, uh, questions, comments, peter at slashfilm.com. That's uh, where you can send it, and maybe we'll mention it in a future episode of this. We're planning on doing this every Friday. We'll see if we can get that uh, out every Friday. Uh, Brian. Where can we find more of your work online? Uh, well, the first thing is, is I, I think there's probably more Easter eggs and stuff like that that I included in my review on Slash Films. So on Fridays, if you want to read my reviews of The Mandalorian to prep you for this, that would be swell. If you like listening to me talk about Star Wars, you could do so on the Full of Sith podcast that I record every week with Holly Fry from the Stuff You Missed in History podcast. And... Um, my way, Star Wars my, writing. My, my favorite episodes okay. that you do of that are like when you're answering the the view the listener emails and stuff like that. Like you guys are just really great together, and you guys are just so good at bouncing off each other. Oh, thank you, I, Holly. Holly makes that easy. Holly makes that really easy. Um, but uh, yeah, and and if anybody's interested in the BattleTech universe, I know there's not a cool movie about it, but. Uh, uh, my latest novel is set in the Battletech universe, and you can check that out. It's called Honor's Gauntlet. Okay, we will link to your piece from today, and I'll link to that to that um, that novel if you can send me the link. I'll put that yeah, in the yeah, show notes, sure. and uh, you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter.slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday.